Well, hey, church, Mesa, South Mountain, Fountain Hills, online, it's great to be with you today. Um, me and my wife have been away uh, for a time of just rest, spending together. Um, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor of this church, and I miss you. I love you all. And uh, if you're a guest, we're glad that you're here today. If you're a guest who started coming while I was gone and you were thinking, well, I'm going to wait to see when this guy gets back. Well, you know, if this is really a church for me, I just want to prepare you to be underwhelmed. Uh, but I'm glad you're here. And I want to let you all know next week we're starting a new series on the book of Exodus. And we're, it's going to be awesome. We're going to go through the book of Exodus for a long time. And I'm going to break it down into sub-series. So it won't be too repetitive. It'll be like different themes. The first part is going to be about how Moses was saved and called for a purpose and used by God. And guess what? The same is true for you. God has saved you, those of you who are believers in Jesus. He's called you and he wants to use you for a purpose. And you wrestle with a lot of the same problems that Moses wrestled with. So this is going to be helpful for you. Come back next Sunday. Bring a friend. Bring your family. Join us for the start of that series. Um, but I want to take this Sunday to talk about something different because something different just happened. While I was gone, on June 24th, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. Come on, somebody give God praise. So that's a huge deal, something I wasn't necessarily expecting to ever see happen in my lifetime. And I was celebrating that. I had tears in my eyes. And then I was really surprised to start seeing some of the different types of responses from Christians on the internet. Oh God, help us with the internet. And so today I want to talk about the Christian response to Roe versus Wade and the news that came out. Um, so if you're new to our church, this will be a little bit of a different type of sermon, but I think it'll be helpful and it's necessary. I want to start off by just pointing out this surprising fact. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> and so can you. And you can also hate abortion, but love people who had abortions at the same time. Amen, church? Now, here's the reality. We have women, many women, I would say, in this church who've had abortions. And some of you who have still struggle with that decision till this day, and you still wrestle with guilt or with shame. Uh, we have men in our church who have participated in an abortion. Maybe you pressured someone into getting one or you abandoned someone to deal with that on their own and they chose that route and you still struggle with the guilt and shame of that. I also think about some of the guys who uh, a woman had an abortion against your wishes and you still mourn over that loss. Um, so I want to speak to anyone who is carrying the weight of that guilt or that shame today. If you are in Christ Jesus you are forgiven and made clean in God's sight. And this is true for anyone who carries shame today. If you're a Christian, here's what the Bible says in 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know that that's actually about you? It's true for you. You're forgiven and cleansed from unrighteousness. God said this in Isaiah 43. I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Look at this. For my own sake, he blots out your sins. It gives God glory to remove your sin from you. Hebrews 10. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. Some of you are still offering yourself up as sacrifices, feeling guilty when the price has already been paid. Even if you shed the blood of an innocent baby, your guilt is washed away by the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. That means that in the court of heaven, God has already declared you not guilty because Jesus served your sentence and took away your guilt. Jesus paid with his life to wipe out your debt. That means you no longer have a legal right to carry the shame of that sin. 
Because Jesus already paid for that shame. You no longer have a right to make payments on a debt that Jesus has already paid off for you. You are bringing up a past that God has forgotten when you talk about your past sins and mistakes. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm saying this to comfort you. Uh, and I'm saying it in a confrontational way. Because if you've been around church for more than five minutes, you've heard a hundred times that God loves you and he forgives you. But it's hard to actually accept it, isn't it? And so my goal in this moment is to comfort you by confronting you. I'm trying a different tactic. I want you to think about it a different way. Uh, not accepting God's forgiveness is not a sign of humility. It's a sign of pride. When you walk around telling yourself, God couldn't forgive me, really what you're saying is what I did in that clinic is more significant than what Jesus did on the cross. As a Christian, you're not defined by what you did, but by what Jesus has already done. And any guilt that you still feel is not a conviction from the Holy Spirit. It's condemnation from the devil. God has either forgiven you or he is a liar. Which one is it? In Romans 8, it says there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. God has removed condemnation from you. So if you bring it back, you're actively fighting against God. God has judged you to be innocent. And so if you declare yourself guilty, you're contradicting God. If God has set you free and you put yourself back in chains, then you're saying, I'm a better judge than God and my justice is better than God's. You have no business putting the rags of shame back on when Jesus has robed you in righteousness. So you got to see it how it really is. I got lots of messages in the last couple of weeks from women in our church who have had abortions. And I want to read one of them to you because a lot of them were a lot like this. I asked Michelle her permission to share this with you. So she said this. Sadly, before I knew the Lord, I found myself pregnant with no support from the Father and estranged from my parents, with no support system around me. I allowed the Father to pressure me into having an abortion. A part of me died with my baby that day. I spent the next 28 years suffering with so many issues, PTSD, anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, emotional numbness, and detachment, just to name a few. My suffering took place in silence because no one talks about the damage moms deal with after abortion. My husband and my kids were the only ones that knew the pain I was in. I did start going to church years later, but never told anyone about my past. None of the pastors preached about abortion, and I felt like no one would understand or that I would be looked at as a monster if anyone knew. So I continued on in isolation. My family and I later started attending Generation Church in October 2015, and from that first moment, I felt like I was home. In March 2019, I attended a weekend retreat for the post-abortive. That was the moment that I knew God wanted to use my pain and my story to help others find their own healing. By the grace of God, I have been serving those damaged by abortion for the past three years. And I asked her, what would you say to the other women in the church? who've had an abortion, who are carrying that pain in silence. She said, to the women who have had an abortion, I see you, I feel your pain, I've been there. I believe for so many years that God couldn't possibly forgive me, that I was unworthy of his love, grace, and mercy. But dear, sweet child of God, you have been forgiven. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for you. His blood has cleansed you and washed you white as snow. God doesn't see a woman who had an abortion. He sees his daughter, one who is so loved uh, by God. The enemy tried to destroy you and stop the call that God placed on your life with that one decision. But God can and will use it for good. Open your heart and forgive yourself and let God use you for his purpose. Amen, church. 
That's the good news about being a Christian. That's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't matter what you have done, God has forgiven you and he's wiped your record clean. He has forgotten your sins, removing them from you as far as the east is from the west. In his sight, you are righteous. And the good news is if you came to church today and you've got a past, you're not alone. You're in the right church. We're a bunch of sinners up in here. God forgives us. He loves us anyway. We're saved by grace. We're not perfect. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory, and yet God saves us anyway, and he redeems us, and he sanctifies us and changes us more and more over time into the image of his son. So if you still sin, you're a work in progress. That doesn't make you a failure. You're a work in progress. Keep following Jesus in faith and trust him to complete the good work he started in you. So I want to talk a little bit about abortion. It's not a right, it's not a woman's choice, it's not a decision between a woman and her doctor, it's not necessary in certain cases. This is all about faith in God versus false religion. The largest religion in the world is not Christianity, it's actually sex. My friend, Pastor Mark Driscoll said this, sex is a religion. LGBTQIA, LMNOP are denominations. <laughs> and abortion is a demonic counterfeit sacrifice. Jesus loved us enough to come as an innocent fetus. Think about that. At one point, God was a fetus. And he came to save as many as possible. Whereas the devil, he hates humanity so much that he targets innocent fetuses and wants to kill as many as possible. God the Father, a loving Father, gave the life of his only Son for our sake. The devil tricks parents into taking the life of their own sons for their own sake. The blood of God's Son was shed to forgive our sin. The blood of babies is shed through abortion because of sin and to enable sin. God gave his Son to bring us peace The devil deceives parents into killing their own sons and daughters, believing that will give them peace. It's demonic, and abortion has always been demonic. And you'll find if you read the Old Testament that killing babies has always been a part of demonic false religion. From the beginning of time, in Ezekiel 16, God says this, Then you took your sons and daughters, the children you had born to me. In other words, those babies belong to me, God says. You don't have a right to kill babies that belong to me. And you sacrifice them to your gods. Was your prostitution not enough? Must you slaughter my children by sacrificing them to idols? That's what people do today. The majority, overwhelmingly, of the time when abortions take place is because of sexual promiscuity, and people don't want to deal with the consequences of that. They'd rather kill than stop doing what feels good. And that's what's going on here. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here here we see uh, how we should think about life and death. Pro-choice versus pro-life. Christians, we are pro-life because Jesus is pro-life. The devil is pro-death. That's his purpose. And abortion is part of his purpose. As a church, we are pro-life because Jesus is pro-life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that is what abortion does. It steals a child's future. It destroys a baby's body. It kills a human life. There is no such thing as a pro-choice Christian. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a pro-choice Christian. Maybe that confuses some of you, and you're like, well, I I know some people who are Christians, but they say they're pro-choice. No, let me clarify. There are foolish Christians who think they're pro-choice. There are confused Christians who think they're pro-choice. There are fake Christians who claim to be pro-choice. Well, how do you know which ones are fake? I, don't, I can't know. God will sort that out. But nobody who actually follows Christ, which is what Christian means, Christ follower, would choose to cooperate with the devil's scheme to bring about death. So you can be a foolish Christian who doesn't understand the truth 
But nobody who loves Jesus loves the thing that God hates. And God says this in Proverbs, that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. It's very clear. To be pro-choice is to passively cooperate with the devil's plot. That's called aiding and abetting. Aiding and abetting. And a pro-choice Christian would be aiding and abetting evildoers who break God's law in the most egregious way. So this is not going to be a sermon about why abortion is wrong, because I think 99% of you already believe abortion is wrong. The difference comes into what we should do about that. Uh, there's, and then there's a variety of responses to this recent decision about Roe v. Wade being overturned. And so I'm here to talk about how we should respond to this news that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Well, let me talk about some of the types of responses that I saw. First, I noticed that there were some Christians and pastors who responded very somberly. And here I am, like, rejoicing, and I'm, like, setting off fireworks. And there's other pastors that are like, oh, man, I'm just really, like, mourning today with all the women who are mourning. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I see Christians are like, we shouldn't be celebrating. And I'm like, what are you smoking? I'm, I'm having a party over here. So there's confusion right away. I could tell like this is not this is not going to be pretty. Like we got a lot of confusion amongst Christianity. And so I think what happens is that some people they responded to this news by thinking first about women who have found themselves in a state where they were vulnerable and hopeless and confused or scared and they had an abortion. And so there are some Christians, they feel first compassion for those women. And don't get me wrong, it's never wrong to feel compassion for people. But there are some Christians in their effort to be sympathetic to moms who have had abortions, they forget to be sympathetic to the babies who die from abortion. And I've talked to guys, I've talked to pastors, I've talked to Christians who are like, well, I'm against abortion. Well, that's good. Uh, but I don't think they say making it illegal is the best way to change people's hearts. Okay, so what, what should we think about that? Is, it, is making it illegal the best way to change people's hearts? No, you can't change people's hearts with the law. But making it illegal is not about changing people's hearts. It's about saving babies' lives. When you step back in comfort, in peace, and in safety, and you say, I don't really know if we should make it illegal. It's like, well, easy for you to say. You're already alive. You're already born. You're not at risk of death. You don't have a noose around your neck. There are babies whose lives are on the line. And, and at least before this decision, more than 3,000 of them were killed every single day in brutal ways. And so sometimes when the danger is this great, you've got to take radical steps to save human life. So like, I think back about like World War II days, right? And you have the Nazis killing people and people are dying and they're putting Jews in concentration camps. And you know, what if I as a Christian, I was here in safety saying, you know, like, I don't really think we should go over there and kill bad guys. I think we should send missionaries to lead them to Jesus. It's like, well, that's a nice thought, bro. But we don't really have time for that. Because there's people getting put in gas chambers today. And so we're going to intervene to save lives. People are like, well, I don't, I don't really know if that's, if that's the best way. And it's like, well, yeah, it, I think it is. So <laughs> I've got a lot more to say. Just wait. <laughs> there are people that say, well, you can't celebrate this because there are still other problems in the world. Like here, here you Christians are celebrating this. Well, what about this? Hey, listen. The Bible said to us in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Okay? If we should rejoice in the Lord even in the midst of tragedy, how much more should we rejoice in the Lord after we experience a great victory? And this is a victory for God's people. Then I've seen Christians and pastors who were kind of like cautiously optimistic. Like, well, yeah, I think this is good, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got a lot of work to do. Let's respond with love and grace and truth. 
And really, none of that's wrong. But really, I think what was happening there was I saw a lot of pastors who were basically giving the Christian version of a politically correct response. And and I I wanna talk about that for a moment. And I I gotta be honest, it makes me uncomfortable to do this. I don't like talking about churches or pastors from the pulpit. And I never wanna attack the bride of Christ. Understand what I'm saying? But I feel like in this situation, there's enough confusion around something that should be so crystal clear that I just need to add a little commentary on that to give you greater understanding about what's going on around us so that you're not confused. Here's what I think is going on. If you go back to like the 70s and the 80s, we saw churches kind of shift their strategy to what is often called the seeker-sensitive movement. And this was started by Robert Shuler in California, guys like Rick Warren, and also like Bill Hybels in Chicago. And really what they did was they made church more accessible to lost people who were seeking God or seeking truth. And so they made it more casual. That's why we're all wearing like jeans and shorts and flip-flops to church today. We can thank those guys. they stopped making church like so judgy and, and, and so religious and, and they just kind of like made everything way more friendly uh, to lost people and seekers. And, and don't get me wrong, I think that that was a good thing. There was a lot of good that came out of that. A lot of you wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for that movement. Okay, so that really impacted how church is done in America. And at the time when this movement started, one of the things they did is they stopped focusing as much on on like sin because Christians had kind of a bad track record of just ranting about sin all the time. And there was a lot of legalism and judgment, just like, well, you did this and you did this and you did this. And and rightly so, they were like, hey, that's not like the main point of of the story here. We don't need to talk about homosexuality and abortion all the time because everyone already knows that's wrong. They didn't need to talk about gender confusion because that didn't exist. But then over time, the culture changed around us. Now Disney is trying to teach our kids that being transgender is totally normal. Now Christians are confused about even abortion. Now now Christians are hearing from Christian voices that homosexuality is not a sin, and they're confused because churches and pastors didn't adapt their strategy to the culture that we're in. You see, over time, our message stays the same, Jesus saves, but the methods change. The methods change to reach the culture we're in. We're now in a culture that is not predominantly Christian, that does not share the same Judeo-Christian values. And so because a lot of these pastors grew up in that movement, they think they're doing the right thing to reach lost people. And that's why they don't talk about a lot of these issues. And so what happened is when this news broke, these guys, whether they realized it or not, a lot of these pastors around us, there's pastors like this in the valley, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not condemning them. I think their hearts are good. They're good guys. I know almost all of them pretty, pretty well. They think they're doing the right thing, but here's what happened. This news broke, and they realized in that moment, uh-oh, I can't just celebrate this even though I know it's a good thing because there are so many people in my church that don't have a biblical worldview that they will be confused. They will be upset. You see, what a lot of churches did is in their effort to reach the lost, they forgot to disciple the found. And if you don't disciple God's people, it'll eventually hinder your ability to reach lost people. So I'm not saying we should just go looking for reasons to criticize other pastors or beat beat up other churches or whatever, but it's incredibly frustrating to me, the situation that we're in today. And so I think that's why we're dealing with things the way they are. Jesus said in John 21 to Peter, he said, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. He didn't say entertain them. He didn't say seek to avoid offending them by telling them only what makes them comfortable. He said, feed them. 
Feed them. And so you've got to give God's people the truth of God's word for God's people to grow up in maturity and be strong. Just like I tell my little two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, eat your vegetables, eat your dinner, right? Like we can't just give her dessert if we want her to be healthy. And so like I just heard a really well-known pastor say this last week. You know, I got a lot of criticism because I didn't talk publicly about Roe v. Wade. And, and people thought it's because, you know, I didn't want people to unfollow me. And he said, really, quote, it's not that I'm worried about that, but people need me, is what he said. Like, people need me. I didn't talk about abortion publicly because people need me. And, like, I know this guy. He's not a bad guy. But I just wanted to say to him, like, bro, people don't need you. They need God's word. And, and, and don't get me wrong. I think Jesus was on to something. Sheep do need a shepherd, but a shepherd is only as good as he takes care of his sheep. A pastor is only as good as the food he feeds his people. People need a pastor, but you need a pastor that will give you God's word, right? And so because we're talking about this, I just want to mention a part of this. Um, hopefully this, this you know, comes across the right way, but, but sometimes when I, when I talk to people who started coming to this church or I hear like, you know, what they said in G101, like, why'd you start coming to church here? And, and people will say, uh, you know, the worship is great, the kids' ministry is great, but one of, the question, one of the things that comes up a lot is people will say, I like that the pastor tells it like it is or that he doesn't hold back, and I'm like, well, that's good. I'm cool. Yeah, I'm going to tell it like it is because what else am I going to do? Tell it like it's not? But then I want, to correct, I want to correct something. Sometimes people say, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat the truth. And I really don't, I don't really think that's the best way to say that. I know what you mean, but I, I, I don't think you need to sugarcoat the truth. Because uh, God's word is actually already very sweet to people who love God. It says in Psalm 119, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Like, so, so God's word is already sweet to the people who love God and who love the things of God. I, I don't have to sugarcoat the, the truth uh, because I'm trying to feed sheep, not goats. And then the other thing people say that I really don't like is they'll say, he doesn't even care what anybody thinks. And I'm like, please stop saying that. Because you're making me sound like a psycho. Right? Like only sociopaths don't care what anybody thinks. I'm a human. I do care what you think. In fact, I probably spend like 60% of my professional life trying to think about what you think and figure out how you think so I can, I can serve you in the best way. And, and like anybody else, I want to be liked too, Right? but I just care more about offending God than offending you, right? So, and that's really what it comes down to. I don't like getting angry emails or death threats any more than the next guy, okay? But at the end of the day, I want Jesus to say, well done. And, and you do that, you achieve that, hopefully by God's grace, by feeding his sheep the way he said to do. Okay, so what should we do? How should we respond? We should rejoice because this is a good thing. This is a good moment in history that we got to be alive for, to see goodness and righteousness and justice take a step forward in our nation. Okay, so I, I've seen like Christian organizations and churches and pastors be like, we shouldn't beat our chests and celebrate. And I'm like, exactly, that is what I'm doing. We should exactly do that. We should celebrate. So, so what's the deal? They're confusing like being a good sport with celebrating the good things of God. You know, if you're playing a game of pickup basketball with your buddies and you win, yeah, you shouldn't like rub it in their face. But there's a big difference between playing a game versus life and death, war against evil, where there's lives on the line. When good wins a battle over evil, that's time to celebrate, y'all, right? In Proverbs 11, it says this, the whole city celebrates when the godly succeed. They shout for joy when the wicked die. Dang! <laughs> I, I didn't say it, right? I just read the news. Proverbs 28, 12 says, when the righteous triumph, there is great rejoicing. But when the wicked come to power, people hide. And they move out of California to Arizona. 
Welcome. Good luck finding a house. When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked are in power, they groan. So, you know, when a president appoints a pro-life Supreme Court justice, that's an appropriate time for Christians to rejoice. Not because we're like, ha ha, we won, you lost, blah, blah, blah. No, no, because we want like babies to live. We want goodness to prevail. So we should celebrate. So here's a graphic of the U.S. that the Washington Post published. Uh, the dark red states are the states where immediately uh, they either had or, or now have laws that restrict abortion or completely restrict abortion. Um, the light red states have restrictions as well and are expected to completely ban abortion. Uh, the yellow states are likely to ban it. So, so we see you know, immediately when this decision was made, many states and hopefully more in the coming days, uh, Florida also, they will make ab abortion illegal or next to illegal. And so... Why is that good? Because less babies will die. That's a good thing. Uh, in Arizona, Attorney General, Arizona Attorney General, his name's Mark Burnovich, he said he will seek to enforce a law from 1901 before Arizona was a state banning virtually all abortions. Mark Burnovich, that is my guy right there. <laughs> My guy, the same guy who in 2020 said that churches could still meet and have church. My, me and that guy would be friends. So now I want to bring this to you and start to help you with how, how to handle this and how to handle the people around you, okay? So since this all came out, a lot of you have been celebrating like me. And maybe you posted something like me, and then you got a lot of heat. Like me, someone, many people have messaged me and basically said the same thing. Pastor Ryan, I shared one of your posts. And now all my family's yelling at me and all my old friends from high school hate my guts. And I'm like, listen, you, you, you got to be careful sharing Pastor Ryan's posts. That's not for the faint of heart. All right. So a lot of you have been attacked, and you have people who were friends tell you they, they hate you, they're done with you, lose my number, delete me, whatever, right? And so a lot of you are asking, like, well, what should I do? Like, how should I respond to these people? What, what should I do with all the people that are trying to debate with me or argue with me? And those are good questions, okay? Uh, so this is a big issue. But it's not going to be the last big issue you deal with. The more the world around us embraces sin and the more you embrace Jesus, the more you're going to find yourself at odds with the world. The more you're going to start to feel like an alien in a strange land. And so you're going to be asking, like, well, how do I interact with people? What should I do? I think it's helpful to have categories to put people into. And it used to be you could just say, well, there's Christians and there's non-Christians. Well, that doesn't work anymore. Because there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians that don't actually believe the things that Christ taught us or the things of God in the word of God. So how can you handle being attacked, arguing, having, having someone, you know, maybe come after you? Should you block them? Should you try to show them love? Should you tell them about Jesus? Should you argue? Should you ignore the haters? What, what should you do? Okay, so I want to talk about how to categorize people based on the framework we get from Proverbs. Proverbs talks about wise people, foolish people, and evil people. First, we'll talk about the wise. It's good to have wise people in your life. Amen? Luke Skywalker had Yoda. He said, there is no try, there is only do. Think about in the Shawshank Redemption, you know, Andy Dufresne had Red. He said, get busy living or get busy dying. How many of you have seen that movie a hundred times? That's wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 2.6 says this, all wisdom comes from the Lord and so do common sense and understanding. Wisdom does not automatically come with education or with gray hair. Education imparts knowledge. God's wisdom imparts understanding. I, I have met a lot of people, they know a lot, but they're foolish. I've met high school dropouts with more wisdom than people with PhDs. 
Because wisdom doesn't come from a university. It comes from the Lord. You can gain experience on your own, but you can only get wisdom from God. It's shocking to me how often I meet 25-year-old dudes who have it all figured out. And I'm guilty. I've been there, right? And what they lack in wisdom, they make up for with confidence. (laughs) Wise people are not know-it-alls. The more you think you know it all, the less you know at all. Wise people, in fact, the more they learn, the more they realize they don't actually know. But the, the thing is, wise people, they want the truth. They recognize it and they receive it. Here's the good news. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. That's what it says in James 1.5. I read this verse once uh, when I was a young, new uh, pastor coming into ministry, and I was like, oh, snap, that's about me. I need wisdom. And and, and it says right here, all I got to do is ask our generous God, and he'll give it to me? Deal. And some of you right now, you read this verse, and immediately you went, oh, God, I need wisdom. You're wise. If you can see the word of God and receive it and put it into action, that's wise. Now, look at this. This is written to Christians. If you need wisdom, ask our God, because you're a Christian. He's our God, and he'll give it to you. What does that tell you? It tells you that not all Christians are wise. You can be a Christian and not be wise. You can be saved and going to heaven, but live your life making foolish decisions. And at one point or another, all of us have been there. You know, at one point, we've all, including myself, have made foolish choices. And you look back on that season in your life, and you go, man, God is gracious. He saved a dummy like me, (laughs) right? And then you learn, and you grow, and you gain wisdom, But here's the good news. If you need wisdom, all you got to do is ask God. And I love the first words of that phrase. If you need wisdom, ask. If you need wisdom, ask. You'll notice wise people, they tend to ask a lot of questions. Foolish people will always tell you all that they know. Well, I think. The wisest people I know ask the most questions. Well, what about this? Tell me about this. What do you think about this? And that's just a reflection of humility and wisdom. And man, if you ask God for wisdom, you will become wise. Ecclesiastes 10 says, The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Isn't God good? He's so good to us, he even told us how to vote. Look at that. That's amazing. You're like, who should I vote for? I'm just saying. <laughs> Lots of people had questions after like Roe v. Wade, like how should we process this? They want to know what's right. And it's okay not to have all the answers, but, but the wise, they're inclined towards truth. When you show them what's true, they accept it. And that's why Proverbs 9 says, instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. So all of us, we're, we're seeking to grow in wisdom. And gain wisdom. And some of you, I think the Holy Spirit could be uh, convincing you right now that you've got room to grow. That's a reflection that you're already gaining wisdom. Some of you right now, God is convicting you that you need to get some new friends in your circle. It's good to have lost friends. It's good to be friends with people that don't know Jesus because then you can represent Jesus to them. But if all your friends don't know Jesus, then you're hanging out essentially with foolish people. And I can say over time, I've seen this play out. Typically, they'll have more of an effect on you than you have on them. I'm not just making this up. Proverbs 13 says this. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. God still loves those fools, but you need some wise friends. And God could be convicting some of you right now because he loves you. You need to join a life group. Our church does this thing called life groups, where we put people together in groups so so that they can have a better life. And there's all kinds of them. There's over 200 of them getting ready to start. Every kind of group you could think of. It's like the Cheesecake Factory menu. (laughs) 
There's like Bible study groups, groups just for men, groups for married couples, groups for older married couples, groups for grandparents, groups for new parents, uh, people that want to go golfing together, work out together, knit together, read a book together, like all kinds, right? There's care groups, so like people that went through a divorce to, to support each other and, and help each other, people that are grieving, like the loss of a loved one, people that are wrestling with addiction, like all, all kinds of groups. And you might think of it like, well, man, I'm just giving up some of my time during the week. Don't think about it as giving up time. Don't think about it as costing you time. Think about it as you making an intentional choice to invest in your life, in the life of your family, and in your future. That is an investment that will pay off. Yes, I know sometimes going to life group is tricky. Sometimes people are messy. Sometimes you have awkward moments. But the alternative is tragic. Living life alone and isolated is not what God intends for you. It says this in Proverbs 9, if you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. So scripture tells us that wisdom leads to God's blessing and favor and wealth and divine protection and everlasting life. That doesn't mean you'll never have problems or go through hard times, but it will go better for you when you walk in the ways of the Lord. So we have a promise here. God's promise is if you humble yourself, wisdom comes to those who have humility enough to ask God for wisdom, who is the source of wisdom. If you humble yourself and you ask for wisdom, God is good enough, he's generous enough to give you wisdom. You will become a wise person and wisdom leads to reward. So here's the next category. Foolish. Some people are foolish. These are people who they don't have wisdom. They lack understanding. Honestly, this is the largest category of people. Most non-Christians are foolish. Like Mr. T said, I pity the fool. (laughs) They know not what they do. And most Christians even, including myself, have been foolish at one time or another. Okay? So again, I want to emphasize this. This where it gets a little confusing. You can be a foolish non-Christian and you can be a foolish Christian. There are people who are saved. They're going to heaven. Their sins are forgiven. And they still act like fools. Because unfortunately, I guess I should say fortunately, wisdom is not qualification for getting into heaven. You just got to believe in Jesus. You know, you can get that one thing right. It'd be kind of dumb on a lot of other things and you're still going to get into heaven. Isn't God good? But your life's going to go a lot worse. Your life will be a lot harder if you walk in foolishness. And so that's not what God wants for you. Since the Roe v. Wade decision came out, I think a lot of foolish Christians have exposed themselves. You see Christians who can, they can't process through truth versus the deceptions of the devil. Not because they're bad, but because they lack wisdom. So I've seen this. I've seen Christians. I know they love Jesus. I know they're going to heaven. I'm not questioning that. But they are repeating pro-choice talking points. And these pro-choice talking points originate in the depths of hell for the sake of causing confusion and deception. Let me, let me give you some examples. So like Christians, they, I know they love Jesus and I know they love babies, but they'll say, what about rape? What about incest? And I would say, what about it? Obviously those are terrible things, but last time I checked, we don't kill kids for the crimes of their fathers. What about ectopic pregnancies? You see a lot about that. What about the mother's life is at risk and now doctors won't be able to treat them? That is a total lie. There is no law that inhibits doctors' abilities to treat mothers who need medical intervention. There never has been and there never will be. It's, just a, it's a lie. It's a myth. If you spend five minutes researching this matter... You'll see that. It's not an actual concern. No Christian wants a mother to die. But, but when, you, when you search this out and you actually see the truth, right? Anytime a mother's life is in jeopardy, a doctor can intervene. He can intervene and seek to treat the mother and he'll seek to treat the baby. And sometimes saving the mother requires losing the baby. But that's very different than seeking out to intentionally kill the baby. 
What about this? I've heard Christians ask this question. Should we, though, as Christians, impose our beliefs on other people? Good question. In this case, yes. Yes, because other people who don't love Christ are also seeking to impose their beliefs on other people. You got to see what's going on here. We're not trying to make anyone take communion. We're not trying to, to create a law that makes people get baptized or sing about Jesus. So we're not trying to impose religion on people. What we're talking about here is not even really a matter of religion. It's a matter of moral ethic that puts value on human life. And all scientific evidence makes it super clear that life begins at conception. And so really it's the same thing as we have laws that say you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't abuse children. And where do those laws originate? Ultimately in the law of the Lord. Thou shalt not steal, that shall not kill, right? Like, like it's right there. And there are people that want to impose their beliefs on society and their beliefs lead to death. So it's very good for us to put laws in place that protect innocent life. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you said some of those things I just said. Maybe you asked some of those questions. I'm not bringing this up to make you feel bad or put shame on you at all. I'm bringing it up because I love you and I want you to see how when you lack wisdom, you leave yourself susceptible to the deceptions of the enemy. There are consequences to lacking wisdom causes confusion in your life. And that's not what the Lord wants for you. So here's the deal. If people come to you with conflict in the break room or on the internet and they're arguing with you, how should you handle it? I think it's helpful to think about this. Most of the people we have conflict with in our lives aren't actually evil. They're just foolish. Most of the time we have conflict with people, it's not that they're evil people. They're usually foolish people. It says in Proverbs 14, a fool is reckless and careless. And so a lot of times we just get hurt by fools because they're being reckless. Like, you know, you get, you get your hair done and you walk in and your girlfriend's like, girl, what'd you do to your hair? And it hurts your feelings. Like, she, she's not evil. She's just being reckless with her words. A lot, of, a lot of husbands have done that too. You know, like, honey, are you going to wear that? <laughs> what? Right? just kind of careless. Right? That's, not, that's not evil. It's just foolishness. So a lot of times people lash out at you. It's not even about you, but what someone else did to them a long time ago. Like, like you've heard it said, hurt people hurt people. And so this is just foolishness. And, it, and remembering that helps me to be compassionate to those people because I remember all the times I've been foolish. Amen? As Christians, we want to be like Jesus and have compassion on sheep who are lost without a shepherd. And we want to be like Jesus who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But you don't want to be one of those foolish people. So, so here's a question. This is like a little bit of a litmus test. When's the last time you let someone correct you? When's the last time someone said to you, hey, actually, that's wrong. And you received it and you said, you know what? You're right. I'm wrong and I'm sorry. That's a sign of wisdom, being able to receive correction and change. And there's some people, they really struggle to do that. Proverbs 12 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So foolish people are tricky to interact with because they think they're right all the time. And then they're really tricky to interact with because there are actually two types of foolish people. Now I'm going to break it down into subcategories. There are humble fools and stubborn fools. And if you're going to be foolish, it's better to be a humble fool. Yeah. Humble fools will receive correction. They'll, they'll receive teaching, rebuke, and they'll become wise. Those are the ones where it's really worth explaining the truth to them. Even if they're arguing with you, it, it can be worth arguing back because you're trying to lead them to wisdom. And you can tell when someone is open to hearing truth. And sometimes you can tell not because of the words they say, but because of the Holy Spirit impressing it on your heart. So I just had this experience yesterday, no kidding. I was talking to a lady, and 
I told her I was a pastor, and she just started to argue with me about how Christianity is stupid, and she's not religious, and she doesn't go to church, and she doesn't believe any of that stuff. And I was like, okay. She's like, no offense. <laughs> I'm like, none taken. I'm, I'm here for people like you. And she's just like, I don't believe any of that. I just think the Bible's all made up by people. And I, I mean, like, Jesus isn't the son of God. And, and you know, I'm a good person. Like, all the, all the objections. I'm like, ma'am, you, honestly, your objections, it's like the same five objections, like, literally everyone else has had. It's not my first time having this conversation, so it doesn't bother me. And, and, and so as she's talking to me and asking me questions, I would, I would do my best to answer her questions. And I started out by just saying, you know, in my heart, I just kind of pray, like, Lord, help me to say the right words and lead me. Amen. And I want to encourage you, you don't have to have perfect responses to people that ask you questions about your faith. You don't have to get all stressed out about saying the right thing. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who will change people's hearts. Your perfect argument won't change a single heart. But the Holy Spirit can change someone's life forever just through your simple obedience and willingness to be used. So I was just doing my best to like answer this lady's questions and trying not to come off as a know-it-all at the same time. And, just kind of resp- and so she's responding to my answers with scoffing. That, I'm sorry, that's just so effing stupid. No offense. I'm like, none taken. And, and so she just keeps going, what about this? What about this? And I'm like, well, well that's, I just could never believe that. But she kept asking questions. So her words said, I'm closed off. But, but her, her attitude and her behavior signaled she was actually seeking something. And, and sometimes it's the people that scoff the loudest that are actually hurting the most. And they're seeking the most earnestly. And so you got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom. What kind of person am I dealing with here? So I just kept answering her questions, and she kept scoffing, but she kept asking, so I kept answering. And at the end, I said, you know, uh, maybe you should buy this book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He was an atheist, and he set out to disprove Christianity. And in the process of trying to disprove it, he found so much evidence for it that he couldn't help but become a Christian. And she said, okay, I'll buy that. And I'm thinking, yeah, sure you will. You're just, and then she's like, what's it called? And she gets her pen out and she starts writing it down. And she's like, is it the case of Christ? No, the case for Christ. Lee, Stro- Lee Strobel, Lee Stroganoff, Lee Strobel, yeah. Look, at, look at, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to read it tomorrow. And so th- this is a person who is seeking answers. She was foolish, but that's someone who is really worth just like, having a conversation with. She had humility, even though her actions and her words were like kind of harsh. Then there's another type of person. There's stubborn fools. I really pity the stubborn fool, okay? Stubborn fools, guess what? They're not open to the truth. They don't want to know the truth. I was talking to one young man before, you know, he's like, well, does the, the Bible really say that this is a sin? And I'm like, no, yeah, bro. Like sex is meant for marriage, like a husband and a wife, one man, one woman, in marriage, that's a good thing, everything else, no. He's like, well, I don't know if I really agree with your interpretation of the Bible. <laughs> okay, got it. Like, he, he didn't want wisdom because he didn't want to change his behavior. He wanted to be justified in what he was doing. That's stubborn foolishness. Those are the people you just got to walk away. So here's the question, is it ever worth arguing with foolish people? The answer is yes. Sometimes it's necessary to argue with even stubborn fools for the purpose of saving humble fools. Because stubborn fools will make all kinds of false arguments that will deceive humble fools. And if I can argue with you to save you, then it's worth it. In fact, it would say this in 2 Corinthians 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I've seen Christians and, and pastors like, we shouldn't argue. We shouldn't argue. We should just like get along. Kumbaya. Pass the peace pipe. Be chill, bro. No. The Apostle Paul wrote here, we destroy arguments that set themselves up against God. And there's a lot of ab- arguments for abortion. And that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
And we should argue against those arguments and seek to destroy the arguments. If you want to argue about who makes the best tacos, fine. We can agree to disagree. If you want to argue about which church has the best worship music, it's obviously our church, but fine. We can agree to disagree. But if we're arguing about should babies be killed because they happen to exist on the other side of the uterus, then yeah, we're going to argue about that. And I'm going to seek to fight against this agenda. Not because I hate people, but because I hate murder. There are some arguments that have life and death consequences. And so that's what we're talking about here. In Ecclesiastes 12, it says this, The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. This is hilarious. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. I really enjoyed that sermon, Pastor Ryan. That was just like a nail-studded stick just (laughs) popping me over the head. I mean, not everything that hurts you is meant to destroy you. Sometimes wisdom is like, uh, it kind of hurts a little bit, but, but you know it's for your own sake to lead you away from destruction and towards life. And a lot of people have just never been told they're wrong before. They're not used to hearing someone say no. And it hurts to hear it the first time. But it's for the purpose of leading us to life. And here's the good news, right? We're not, we're not trying to beat down someone who's been foolish. Proverbs 15 says, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. So when you receive correction, God can pick you up out of foolishness and set you in a place of solid foundation where you have wisdom when you receive correction. Then this is the last category. We're almost done. There are evil people. All evil people are foolish, but not all foolish people are evil. Foolish people sin, whereas evil people love sin. When we talk about abortion, we tend to you know, think of the scared, struggling, single mom, and we feel compassion for her. We should, but we need to remember there's another type of person in this situation. There's also people who are evil, and they love evil. And that's a reality of the world that we live in. I saw videos yesterday of women who were at a pro-choice rally screaming, we love killing babies. There are people like that in this world. It's not pleasant to think about, but there are people who consider themselves Satan worshipers who have been posting about how killing babies is part of their right to religious free speech because it's part of their demonic rituals in the process of worshiping the devil. There are politicians who talk about how they're gonna fight like hell for the right to have an abortion. And to which I respond, you are definitely fighting like hell. These are people whose consciences have been seared by the fires of hell. And these are the people that we need to resist. It says this, when you think about Evil people, Proverbs talks about them a lot. The wicked, the evil. It says, wicked people crave evil. Their feet rush into evil. They're swift to shed blood. The kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. That that verse is funny. The first part of it says, the righteous take care of their animals. But the kindest act of the wicked are cruel. Like godly people even take care of animals. But wicked people will be cruel on their best day. Proverbs goes on to describe how violence gushes from their mouth. They'll pay back your good deeds with evil deeds. They rebel against God. They're deceptive. They plot against the godly. They cheat, and on and on and on it goes. These are people you need to recognize. There are evil people in this world. There are evil people. I get messages from these types of people. You have probably at some point or another encountered somebody like this. Even, it's sad to admit, but there are sometimes evil people in churches. And you've got to learn to recognize them when they pop up. And so with people like this who are evil, when it comes to like debating or arguing, just don't even waste your time. These are the people you just need to walk away from. 
And, and some of you might struggle with that. You'd be like, well, really? You just walk away? Shouldn't you try to, like, lead them to Jesus? I was like, well, man, if they're evil, the Bible actually says, don't get involved. Uh, Proverbs 9 says this, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. So if you're trying to show someone the truth and the Holy Spirit shows you, hey, this person's just a mocker, they're, they're an evildoer, that's the time to shake the dust off your sandals and just walk away. And although we walk away from that argument, we should fight against the agenda of the evil whenever we can. It says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. The one who does not walk in step with the wicked. As Christians, okay, we cannot walk in step with the wicked. We can love the wicked. We can pray for the wicked. But we can't stand with the wicked. That's why you cannot be a Christian who follows Christ and pro-choice. You cannot stand for life and stand with those who celebrate death at the same time. You cannot serve two masters. You've got to choose whom you will serve. We can pray for evildoers. We can seek them out and love them, but we cannot stand with them. As Christians, we know it's not our job to destroy those who do evil. We know ultimately that God is a God of justice, and in the end, he will enact justice. In the meantime, we should pray for those who do evil, and we should remember, at one point, a lot of us did evil. Some of you would say, yeah, I, I was an evildoer before I found Jesus. A lot of you would, would relate to this. Like, I didn't just sin. I love to sin. I didn't just hurt people. I thought it was fun to hurt people. I didn't just cheat people. I sought out people whom I could cheat. And that's the amazing thing about being a Christian, you discover like our God's love is so great and his grace is so great that he saves evil people. He saved a wretch like me, right? And that's the amazing thing is all God's people can experience this type of forgiveness and redemption. And even the most wicked person can receive salvation. Like the, like the apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of the books of the New Testament. And at one point he was a wicked person. He hunted down Christians for the sake of killing them. That's why he said, I am the chief of sinners. And if God could save him, God can save you. If God could save me, God could save you. The godly, it says in Proverbs 11, can look forward to a reward, while the wicked can expect only wrath. This is amazing news for the godly. <laughs> and it's a warning for the wicked. Those of you who are godly, you got a reward coming your way. And let me clarify that. If you've accepted Jesus, you are made righteous in God's sight. So when this says the godly, it's talking about you. And the more you live like Jesus, the more blessing you're going to experience. But ultimately, the reward we receive is a reward that we don't earn. It's a reward we inherit through adoption. We get adopted into God's family, and we benefit from the reward that Jesus earned on our behalf. Everlasting life in heaven, redemption, forgiveness, joy, peace, strength, wisdom. The reward of Jesus becomes your inheritance through faith in Jesus. Aren't you grateful for that? And then, I'm going to close with this. It's a warning for the wicked, those who have rejected Jesus. Maybe you came to church today and you're like, well, I'm trying to figure it all out. I don't really believe yet. You know, I'm just kind of like on the fence. I've got questions. I've got observations. I've got objections. I've got confusion. I need to ask. Well, there's a lot of religions in the world. They all say they're the way to heaven. They're, you know, there's a lot of competing ideologies. Well, guess what? God's word is the final word. He says you're a wicked person. Your sin makes you guilty. And the wages of sin is death. If you continue on in sin, you will ultimately find wrath. And God's wrath is a terrible thing. But for Christians, we don't experience God's wrath because he already poured it all out on Jesus. So you can either receive the wrath for your sin or let Jesus handle it for you. And I would invite you to receive salvation today. Receive salvation. All of us are guilty 
but all of us can receive God's grace. And we can look forward to that reward that God makes available to us. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Let's close our eyes. Man, I pray for healing for anyone who's experienced the pain of abortion. I pray for wisdom for all of you who have to interact with difficult people. God would give you the right words to say and, and give you wisdom as to when to open your mouth, when to remain silent, when to walk away, when to lean in. And I also just want to talk to anyone who's here who would say, you know what, I'm a sinner and I need God's forgiveness. I want to accept Jesus today. Great. The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't even have to go through a class. You don't even have to get baptized. You don't have to take communion. You just have to trust in Jesus and the rest of that stuff can follow. You just trust in Jesus to save you and you will be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, if you believe in your heart and you confess your sins that Jesus is the son of God and you believe he died for you and rose again, you will be saved. So maybe that's you. Maybe this is your day. You're, you're sitting in Mesa. You're sitting in South Mountain. You're sitting in Fountain Hills. You're online right now watching on your TV in your living room and God wants to save you today. If that's you, pray this with me right now, wherever you're at. This is your moment. Just pray in your own words. Just say, God, I have sinned. I need your forgiveness. I need you to save me. I'm putting my trust in Jesus to save me. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe Jesus lived a perfect life that I could never live. I believe Jesus died in my place on the cross so that I could be forgiven. And I believe Jesus rose again so I could have everlasting life and hope for the future. I thank you, God, for loving me. And now I ask you to lead me from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.